Greetings, greetings, and blessings abundantly, everyone. Welcome to the Abundance Universe podcast. Very excited to share some awesome information with you today. Today, I have a very special guest, my good friend, Miss Dana Goodman. Dana, welcome to the Abundance Universe podcast. How are you today? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Super excited to share a lot of great information. Absolutely. Well, just so everybody knows, Dana is a expert at a lot of things. She's a finance expert. She's a loan officer. She's a mortgage expert. She's an educator. And she's helping people get into their first home in a lot of cases. She's helping people understand the entire mortgage and finance game and what goes into the financial side of real estate. And today, as she mentioned, she's going to share an amazing presentation with us. It's going to be very informative and educational. And we want you all to engage and ask any questions you have down in the comment section. Let us know and may do another episode and answer those questions. But we wanted this session to be really informative. And most of all, I want you to meet Dana and get to know a lot about her and how awesome she is. So, Dana, without further ado, I'll, awesome. I'll pass it over okay. to you. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen with you right now. Um and let me make sure this is good. Okay, so we're sharing my screen right now. There I am. Um, my name is Dana Goodman, as, as I mentioned, and I am a mortgage loan officer. I lend in 50 states. And, uh, you know, I've, I've done a bunch of these podcast, uh, po not podcasts, but presentations. And last presentation I did, they said, why don't you tell us something about you? Uh, not just, you know, what you do, but about you. So I made this this slide is a little bit about me. Um, over on the left here, you see that's my 20-year-old daughter. Um, she's going to be a senior in college next year. We were in, on vacation in Mexico last year, and we took that photo. Um, here's my dogs. Um, as you can see, they they that's actually their bed. Um, very spoiled. Um, and um, these are some of the things that I like, some of the things that are a part of my life. Um, I'm very interested in yoga. I've been practicing yoga for about 10 years. It's really brought me the namaste. <laughs> That's my dog coughing if you hear some hacking in the background. Um, part of what I do, what I love to do is community outreach. And uh, one of the things that I've worked, for, worked with for a number of years was Homeboy Industries, which is an organization downtown that helps formerly incarcerated members get off the street, helps jobs. And I put about 10 of them into their first homes. Um, it that's wasn't awesome. fast. Go ahead. I said, that's awesome. Yeah. So I work with a realtor who actually came up through the homeboy system, got off the street, became a very successful. Realtor. And he and I have been doing, uh, presentations and putting, uh, graduates of the homeboy program into their first houses. I also went to USC. Uh, I'm just going to give a plug here for going to college or vocational school. I know that this is not what this presentation is about, but I highly recommend it as a, vehicle for you to become a successful real estate owner, a successful business owner, if you can take that time out of high school. And I'd love to do come back and do another presentation about getting money for college and or vocational school and why it's important. Absolutely. Um, I So I do a lot of community outreach. I am a patron of the arts. I like all kinds. I was married to a painter, a fine art painter for 12 years. I ran his business don't think if you're an artist that you don't have a business because you do. Um, we all have to kind of be in that mindset, even for creative people, for writers, for artists, for painters, for actors, for dancers. You have a business and you have an interest in your business. And being interested in your business is really part of your um, 
of, of gaining a measure of financial literacy so that you can be secure in your future. Absolutely. Okay. I talk I talk to entrepreneurs all the time about the importance of having the creative side mixed with the business skills and the business acumen and the organization. And, and sometimes it's it's even more important, the business side, uh, than having the talent because it's kind of the foundation for everything. So I'm so glad that you're covering these topics. It's so yeah, essential it, for it, anybody that's listening to the podcast. Yeah, it lets you, it, it allows you the freedom um, to pursue, uh, to grow your business. And if you're just um, performing and taking that money and putting it in your pocket, you're probably not running a business. <laughs> right. so, um, so this is a, just a definition of financial literacy. Um, it's basically um, what we're going to talk about investing today. We're going to talk about real estate, but it really covers everything. Um, financial skills that are personal and that also are that go towards your business. Nobody is born knowing how to do this stuff. Um, it, it can be taught if you don't know, you know, nobody knows how to do this, especially if you're in high school and you're moving to college. This isn't, may not be something that you're familiar with, you may not have been taught. I know my parents didn't really talk to me about money when I was growing up. Did your parents? Not a lot. It was a very, very basic level, uh, but not not an investing level. It was more about, uh, you know, here's how you can save the money you have and put it away and make sure that you have some for later. But <clears throat> when the when the questions are asked, how do we make money? How do we how do we get new money coming in? Um, it's usually qu crickets. So there's just not a lot of information about it and um, definitely didn't have a lot of dinner table conversations about um, making or saving money. Um, it was usually about other things. And the conversation when it does come to the finances, usually just around getting a great job. And that kind of ends yeah. there, you know, so it's really interesting. But, but not how you're spending your money, how you're managing your money. I mean, I, I kind of went out into the world. You know, we obviously knew my my parents, probably just like your parents, were of the save mindset. Right. It was also more affordable to live. So there was money to be, there was money you could save. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, now that's one of our challenges. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later is being able to save in, in kind of this economy. Um, so my parents didn't really talk about that. And they also didn't talk about how to responsibly use credit. Um, at that time, you didn't need credit as much as you need it now uh, just for a living. And uh, I was not very good with credit cards when I first got one in college because I just didn't know how to use it or what it meant or how it impacted me. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, I'm going to talk about credit first. I'm going to mix some of this with um, some home buying uh, information and real estate information. And so it's going to be an amalgamation of just sort of a financial literacy mindset and also, um, you know, I am going to talk about real estate because that's what we're here for, right? <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to talk about the credit bureaus. I don't know if you know this, but the bureaus are independent agencies that collect information about you. Have fun. Um, and with that information, some of the information that they collect, they amalgamate into a score, which we call a FICO score, which we're going to talk about in, in a little bit. But the credit bureaus came about because um, back when the country was forming, local merchants had to maintain a, a list of people who weren't paying their bills, right? Because maybe you didn't have the cash, you were a farmer, and you got something on credit. And so some of the earliest sort of credit bureaus were local merchants who were talking to each other about who was paying their bills and who wasn't paying their bills. 
Um, and now, obviously, that's turned in. You can see the history of when these credit unions were formed. I remember it used to be called TRW, now it's called TransUnion. There are three bureaus, and they process about a billion points of data every single month on a billion credit cards in the United States. But not just credit cards, other kinds of trade lines like student loans, judgments, uh, bankruptcies, they keep track of it all. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of a history of you know how the credit unions came into being. Um, we're talking a little bit about this, about what kind of information they maintain about you. Um, and so they have everything that is like your current and past credit accounts. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but when you have a credit card, um, they'll keep the record of your payments for seven years on that credit card. It'll go seven years back. Uh, if you have a single 30-day late payment on a credit card, it can drop your FICO score about 30 or 60 points. Um, so they will keep that. That will impact you for seven years, single late payment. Um, they will keep track of payment history, negative information such as bankruptcy or default, like default on student loans or other kinds of debt. And uh, they also keep a record of who has um, accessed your credit information. Um, as a lender, you give us permission. You should not. You, sh you should be asked for permission to pull your credit. We will pull credit from all three of these bureaus, and we will use the middle score uh, to to uh, to qualify you for your loan. Um, credit bureaus are now selling information. Uh, you can actually go and opt out having your information sold, but a lot of credit bureaus, especially Experian will package your information and sell it to people who will buy it unless you opt out. Uh, people who will buy it are people that, for example, when you get your credit pulled on a mortgage, they may sell that information to other mortgage companies. So you may find yourself getting phone calls. Or if you apply for a credit card, you may find yourself getting phone calls or emails from other um, competing offers. And they are permitted to do this unless you go and opt out. If you Type in Experian, opt out. They will take you to the website. It does take about 90 days to take effect so that you're not getting those phone calls. Okay, so it's basically like a do not call list that you can yes. submit to the credit bureaus. That's yes. interesting. Could you also talk real quick about the value of having a credit freeze or not? Because I actually had a credit freeze on my credit and recently had to take it off um, to apply for a new credit card. And they let me know, oh, we couldn't check your credit because you have a freeze on TransUnion, but you had you removed the other one. So you got to go back to TransUnion and remove the freeze. But could you talk for a minute about credit freezing and why someone might do that? So um, a credit freeze is done if you suspect someone has um, that you are, are having identity theft or you're concerned about um, information being released. And you can call one of these three bureaus. I just pulled this back up so you can see the three bureaus. Um, and freeze access to your credit report. Uh, for a mortgage, uh, we, don't, we need two scores that report, but because sometimes they're slightly different scores, I would ask someone to unfreeze it so that I could pull the third score mm -hmm. and that we would get the best of three rather than the best of two. It gives you an extra chance to get a higher score. Um, so you might freeze it if you uh, think that you're identity theft, but you should definitely unfreeze it at some point in time. Um, you shouldn't leave it frozen uh, indefinitely. Also, um, when you freeze your score, you basically omit 
that bureau's trait uh, score for you. So um, anything that's reporting to that bureau will not report. So what that means for you is you may not be getting the whole picture. Um, to get to apply for a mortgage loan, your your want your frozen credit line if you typically has to be unfrozen because this the it will impact the score if it's not if it's frozen nothing is going to impact the score. Sometimes we unfreeze it and we see oh now those late payments are going to impact. Um, so the reason that you do it is to protect um, people from accessing your information. There should generally be no reason to freeze your credit score unless you're absolutely sure of it. If you think you're the, the victim of identity theft, there's a process that you go through. You need to report to all three bureaus and they will freeze it for a period of time. Equifax is very transparent with consumers. They have a fantastic website. If you want to go to it, you can find all about what to do with identity theft. Very user friendly. Awesome. Thank you for touching on that real quick. Um, uh, let's talk about FICA score for a minute. Uh, if you don't know what one is, it's the, um, the bureaus each have their own FICO score and it's, it's an uh, analytic of your, um, of your, these things that we're looking at right now, your amounts owed, your payment history. This is the percentage that it impacts your score, the new credit, credit history, and credit mix. Credit mix means a combination of what we call installment loans and revolving credit. So an installment loan is a loan that you're going to pay off in a certain amount of time, right? Like a car loan. That's an installment loan. Uh, it has very little clout. So if you only have an installment loan, that's probably why your FICO is a little bit low because the um, bureaus cannot see a payment history like revolving debt. Revolving debt is when you're given a balance and you don't want to exceed that balance. Um, so it's very important to have a mix of both installment and revolving. Installment debt is also student loans or anything that you're paying off the same amount every month until for a certain period of time until it's all paid off. A revolving credit card, like a Macy's card, is where they give you a, a credit limit of $3,000 and you're you know, you go and you shop and you pay it off and then you shop and then you pay it off and you're either carrying some of that debt from month to month or you're paying it off. And that is how they can get which this one over here, which is payment history. The most important thing you can do for your credit is to make your payments on time. I have seen credit drop 60 points for missing a $25 payment to Macy's. One 30 day late to Macy's. Now you do have 30 days. So <laughs> from the time your bill, if your bill is due on the 5th, you have till the 5th of the next month, pay it. But I have seen people let their credit destroy their credit for very small amounts of money. Um, and I ask people to kind of do a personal audit and say, if you are not, if you don't have $25, then you should not be shopping on that credit, right? Uh, it's really painful. It's almost worse than having a catastrophic event because that late payment will be on there for seven years. You can hire someone at your cost to from a credit repair agency to go back. The, re the way that they try to get that removed is they dispute it. Um, and they're very good at that. And sometimes you can get that removed, but that could cost you thousands of dollars when you really only had to make that $25 payment. Um, so payment history, I think that's the most important thing. The second most important thing to me is amount owed. 
Okay. Okay. If you are given a credit line of $3,000, you should not have a $2,995 balance. Because if you have that, you run your credit line up all the way. That will be very painful on your FICO. You should be no more than two thirds of the available credit. So for example, if you have a thousand dollar credit line, you really shouldn't spend more than $666, right? Um, Three, um, uh, just two thirds. So just keep that, make sure you don't go all the way to the top of your credit line. A lot of people do. A lot of people do. It's common. And what happens is it, it just, it destroys your FICO. I mean, you can get it back. That's the good thing about a FICO is in 30 days, as long as you don't have a derogatory, like a late payment, you can correct it. And we can actually correct it when you're looking for a mortgage. There are some things we can do. Uh, We're not credit repair people, but if you, we can run a worksheet and see what we could do to pay off to get a slightly higher FICO. Um, And what are, what are some tips you have for somebody that maybe they did have some situations happen. They let some payments get behind and they're working to get their credit score up because maybe they do want to purchase a home or get a mortgage. What are some activities that we can do um, in addition to, of course, paying on time? Um, what, what can someone do to get their credit score up quicker other than just. Yeah. Making sure OK, paid? so, so uh, they we can uh, there's some ideas. One is to pay down the existing. If you have other cards, continue to pay them on time, including the derogatory. Try to pay them off as quickly as you can try to maintain less than two thirds of the available balance. Uh, Your credit score may be so low that you may not be able to get any more credit um, to build credit. That's kind of an issue with people. Sometimes they just, they're, you know, a lot of people that I work with at Homeboy have very low, low credit because they've either been incarcerated or not using the credit system. So what we recommend typically is to get a secure card, um, to establish new credit, a secured card is a kind of credit card that requires a deposit. Um, you make a deposit, you it, it will report to the bureaus that you will start anew. Um, it does not require a, so, a co-signer, it's very basic, but if you get a secured card, you have to use it. So I, I recommend people go out, they buy a tank of gas every month on their secured card and pay it off the next month. You are trying to show the bureau, you are trying to establish your um, reliability and being able to pay this off. And once you have a secured card for a while, you can go into your bank and ask them if they can convert it to a regular credit card. Both Discover and Capital One offer secured cards. You just have to Google them and they will, um, you can apply for one. I think it's, I think they're, they, some of them are very, require a very small deposit. They are very worthwhile, legitimate credit cards that will help you rebuild your credit. The other thing, if you have no credit, a secured card is great. If you have no credit and you're a student, you can get something called a student credit card. It's especially important for young people who just don't have experience with credit, does not have, you can see some of the qualifications there, does not have a deposit required. You do have to have some sort of income, a job. Um, It's uh, great. Most banks will offer it. Bank of America has one. Chase has one. Discover has one. Capital one has one, they have different uh, per, they're different kind of uh, perks than the secured card, but um, it's great for kids who are enrolled in school. Um, so that's, you know, a couple things that you can do to rebuild your credit, continue to work your credit, and then over time, you will improve it. And we can talk about FICO. It does not require a, ver- a particularly high FICO score to purchase a home. Uh, 
but the better your score, the better your rate will be. Right. Um, lower score to a lender, or it's very automated now. So uh, it's there's not really a lot of subjectivity in lending. You know, we don't lend because we like someone. You know, it's 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 an algorithm. It's run by the computer, and we as loan officers we work on structuring loans to make them look really great so that we can get that approval. But it just shows the lender that you ha have responsible use of credit. Uh, it's just so highly important. We could do an entire presentation on credit. Um, and especially if you're starting out, if you're a young person, especially if you're an artist, uh, you may not have, you may have thought of a cash and kind of carry situation. Um, and that's really, you really need to establish credit is so important. It's not just important for financial health, but these days you need it to get an apartment. You need it, uh, for certain jobs. My job, they pull my credit every quarter. Uh, to make sure that I walk the walk. <laughs> right. And um, right. some jobs will require it just to see that you don't have any outstanding, you know, whatever. So uh, a lot of people experience periods of um, where they have derogatory credit. I, I've had that myself where I wasn't making a lot of money. I mean, I think we've all been there. And the good thing about credit is that it, it can change. You know, it doesn't have, it won't stay that way forever as long as you adapt new habits. I'm going to talk about habits. It's not really a skill. Honestly, it's a habit. Paying your bills is a habit. Um, and it's a habit that's very important for your financial health. Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's get into it. This is exciting. Yeah. So, uh, it's, we, um, if, you know, if you have any questions about credit, we can do another uh, it, it's actually a whole other presentation on credit and how to establish credit, but this is a good way to work on credit. Please forgive yourself for the whatever past wrongdoings on your credit. It can improve. It can. It will improve. Um, and I have worked with hundreds of people who who have gone from you know sub sub six hundred to over seven hundred. You know, based on following a program, it might take six months, but um, you can you can get there. Um, I, I want to mention one more thing. You can also become an authorized user on someone else's account. As long as that person also maintains good credit, they will share some of their credit with you and uh, their account, be, their, their credit becomes your credit. Authorized user is a great way for people who don't have any, any credit at all to go with a parent or an uncle or an aunt who's responsible and become an authorized user on their card use the card responsibly. Any of these solutions will not work if you do not use this responsibly. You get a secured card and you don't make your payments or you get a student card, regular card, and you don't make your payments. It's just going to be back to where you were. Right. So let's talk a little bit about real estate because uh, we're going to just kind of jump into that. Now we are, we're talking about credit because it is so important, but I wanted to see if you know the answers to these so oops sorry about that okay, so, so got some um, true or false true or false trivia here true or false trivia Bijan. i'm gonna see if you um now i can't see this let me see where i can move this uh what's oops sorry ah okay wait i'm getting rid of my whole thing sorry about that okay um i i, I can't read number one because my toolbar is in the way but what does it say <laughs> Number one says you need excellent credit to purchase a home. True or false? Okay, I'm going to ask you that. Okay. 
What so do you think? I think that's false. I think that that's true. You're right. That is false. Um, yes. You do not need excellent credit to purchase a home. You need reasonably good credit. You, know, you want to take a guess of what a reasonably good FICO score is? I mean, a decent FICO score to buy a house. Uh, I would say like 650. 20. 620. Yeah, you can go down to 620. Uh, you're probably not going to get the best rate. Um, and you may have to show a little bit more uh, reserve sometimes to get that. But 620 is um, is where we're at right now. Some lenders will go to 500. I just don't recommend it. It's going to it's I would rather get your credit score up and go with a, a 620 is is the minimum. OK. OK, next one. Next one says purchasing a home is cheaper than renting. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I think that might be false. Um, starting out, I think a, a, a actual home purchase is going to cost a little bit more than just paying rent. Uh, yes. Just my notion. Yes, you're right. So it used to be that we, if we were all living in the middle of the country and houses were $130,000, then I we probably would be less than renting. But it really isn't less than renting. Uh, it has some other costs that are built into it besides principal and interest, which we're going to talk about in a little while. So, uh, yeah, that's it's not cheaper than renting. Okay. Let's see. The next question says, I can purchase an investment property for the same terms as a primary residence. Low down payment, low interest rate. I think that's true. I think we could get an investment property on similar terms. Maybe not the same price, but same terms. Uh, that's actually false. Okay. <laughs> you cannot. Uh, investment properties have way deeper, um, way more, um, uh, I guess, harder terms than most people say. It's harder to get an investment property. Um, occupancy is a big deal with lenders. We're going to talk about that later. It's your intent. What your intent is, is when you want to buy. I'll give you some ideas about purchasing an owner-occupied or primary residence with an investment component. But investment properties are higher rates significantly more down payment and reserves. Um, okay. Reserves are savings that you have to show a certain amount of savings in your bank account at the time of closing that you can, um, so that you can properly manage an investment property. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And is that required for a residential as well? Do you have to have reserves or? No, most of the time, no. Sometimes if you have very low credit, the uh, findings will come back and say, we would like it would loan quality would be strengthened by reserves. So sometimes we can you have a 401k or something. It's very, it's not often, but occasionally uh, again, these loans are underwritten by an automated underwriting system. Um, and then the loan officer's job is to make sure everything is structured correctly. Um, so uh, what was, <laughs> what was I saying? <laughs> We're talking about um, the terms. Yeah, the terms are going to be different for investment. Part. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I'm going to show you what the terms are for investment okay. and how to, how to work around it, too. Okay, cool. And I see the next one. It says there are down payment assistance programs for primary residents. Yes. I, I think that's true. It is true. Yeah, yeah. we work with a couple of them. Um, we can finance the down payment. Uh, some of them can allow cl for closing costs. We can talk, we, you know, we can talk about that. That's kind of a future um, presentation, but there are programs available to help first time home buyers. 
because a lot of times that big chunky down payment is hard for people. That's the hardest thing to come up with. Right. Now, what if it, what if I was a first time home buyer, but I want to buy something like a four unit, like a four unit property. Yeah. So if residential, you were- but still an investment property. How would that mm, work with the down payment assistance? No DPA for units. For so if you're going to have anything more than one unit owner occupied, you cannot use the down payment. Okay. You can get you can get better terms if you live in one of the units, right? So if you live in a unit, there's a couple special programs, not down payment assistance, but to allow you to have an investment component to your property. They are stricter and and harder. And by the way, this is across the board. I I know a lot of people don't know this, but all the banks we for this kind these kinds of loans we all sell our loans to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, who are big agencies who buy loans. We call them the agencies. They write the guidelines, and so you will not get variation from guidelines from bank to bank. Right? My bank is just the same as Wells Fargo. We underwrite the loans the same way. We use the same calculations for income and we follow the same guidelines. Um, so um, there are ways to be able to buy a four unit and live in one unit and rent the others. We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. The next one says poor, poor credit is the number one factor preventing home ownership. Uh, maybe that's true. I don't know. Yeah, it's not true. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I would think maybe just like income would be the, the, the income. number one. Yeah. Yeah, especially for um, sometimes, but especially when I'm working with entrepreneurs or creatives, they need a little time to plan because um, income stability is very important in home buying for a self-employed person, and whether it's an artist or an entrepreneur. I'm going to talk about this, What how we calculate the income but we usually use a two-year average. Um, and sometimes that, you know, if you're working with someone that's self-employed, they like to write everything off. So their net income is not very much. So income is can be a very big factor, especially with rising, um, uh, you know, rising rates, uh, very low inventory, especially in Southern California. I lend in 50 states, but Southern California is very hard right now because we don't have any in- inventory. Um, so it's really a combination of factors, but poor credit, I would say, is bottom of the list. Okay. So we just need to have that investment capital to be able to put forth. And um, if there are other factors in place and reserves and things like that, credit may not be as big a factor or preventative. I don't think it is. I think it, income is a bigger factor. Okay. Income then. That's a number one factor. Is yeah. Income. Income. Okay. Okay, so the next question I'm checking out here says there is a housing bubble right now and it will pop, prices or rates will drop. I think that's false. You would be right. <laughs> what what happens in our microcosm of Southern California is when the rates drop, there's a frenzy to buy. Um, and what will happen is the prices will go up when the rates will drop. Uh, the prices, if the prices go down and the rates and the rates stay high, there will still be a frenzy. Uh, and I don't, in Southern California right now, there are only about 12,000 listings on the MLS, which is the real estate listing service. I'm not a real estate agent, by the way, but I work with them. I know a lot about them. We sort of, you know, work together, but that's not very many houses, 12,000 properties for listing in Southern California. That is just not there are a lot of, of people who need homes. There's a housing shortage. 
Um, I'll give you an example. Burbank, the city of Burbank, they have 60,000 people that commute into Burbank every single day to work in the motion picture and television industry, and they have nowhere to live. Hmm. Um, so they have to come from other cities. I don't know if you've been in Burbank at five o'clock on rush hour, but that's why it's like that, because you have 60,000 people uh, driving in. So it, it's, in, it's an inverse relationship. When rates drop, prices go up. When prices drop, sometimes rates will go up to try to slow down the economy. That's why rates are going up now. But we still have a lot of competition. Actually, now is a great time to buy. Because even if we have to get a higher rate to get into a property, we have less competition right now. So if you have a higher rate for 24 months and then we can refinance into a lower rate, you 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 date the rate, you marry the house. <laughs> so um, there are solutions for that. Okay. All right. So the next one, I need 20% down to purchase a home. I think that's false. False. Yeah. Minimum is 3% down. So yeah. depending on the program, that is an owner occupied home, not an investment property. Okay. It does it. Is there a minimum requirement for an investment property for doing a traditional yes, it's loan? 20, it's minimum 20% down and other restrictive factors. Okay. Um, so one agency Freddie Mac is 20% down. Fannie Mae is 25% down and you may have to show landlord experience. There's a bunch of things. We're going to talk about it. And I, we're going to talk about the what the solution is for this because I I have a solution for this. People who want to invest in real estate. Let's go. There's always a way where there is a will. There's there a, is way. a way. And when you have great mentors who are educated like Dana, there's always a way. Thank awesome. you. All right. So let's see the last question. It says a mortgage payment is made up of principal and interest. I think that's false because there's also some taxes, some insurance. There's some yep. other, uh, other features. Uh, factors that we have to consider. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Where I'm going to tell you what what makes up a mortgage payment. Um, or uh, and so you know, as we get a little bit closer, we continue talking about this. We will. Um, I will uh, share with you. So here it is. Um, the this is sort of the difficulty in qualifying for mortgage, uncertain income, low credit score. I would not agree with. I don't agree with this graph. I actually think too much debt is the next one. Um, we operate on a monthly income uh, for the um, premise. So all your monthly income, uh, all your monthly debt, including the mortgage taxes and insurance can be no more than a 50 to 56% of your income. And that would be gross income as a W-2 employee and net income as a self-employment. So um, I'm gonna say too much debt if you have a big old car payment, we're going to talk about that in a minute. That's going to take up a lot of your purchase power. That's going to reduce it. We look at everything on a monthly level, not on a yearly level and not on a balance level. So we're going to include all your liabilities in your monthly debt. Uh, you might have a $40,000 student loan, but you're only making a payment of $58. That's all we care about. We care about the monthly, not the what we call the aggregate or total debt. Um, so you'll look at if I want to come in and get a mortgage with you, you're going to say, what is your monthly income and what is your monthly expenses? And that's yes. what's going to be used to qualify yes. that. And now we're going to talk. Yeah, we're going to talk more specifically about what constitutes debt, what constitutes uh, income in a minute. OK. Um, lack of financial knowledge. This is why we're getting educated about this. Do not know the first step. The first step is to get pre-qualified. 
That's always what you should do to see what you can afford upfront because we'll tell you right away and we'll actually get that approval right away so that when you go out and shopping, you can shop with confidence. I'm not going to talk too much about the pre-qualification and the house buying process. That's another, uh, I'm, I'm just going to talk about preparing to, um, to buy real estate. We're going to talk about that in another presentation. Awesome. So um, let's just start with what constitutes as debt. Um, you can look at some of these things. Um, when we say debt, we mean what's coming up on your credit report. Okay. Um, the only exception for that would be maybe if you it, like alimony, if you're paying alimony, then you need to disclose that. Um, alimony does not, or child support do not always show up on your credit report unless they're obligated by the county or some other government agency. So we do ask you, um, you know, if you have that, and here are some things, what do you think? Do you think charge offs? Now, when you have a charge off, that means that the, the vendor, the, the, um, the people that you borrow the money from have charged that off on that, on your, on the, their books is a charge off. Do you think you charge off counts as debt? Does a charge off count as debt? Yeah. If you have something that's been charged off, the company, you know, let's say Macy's, they charge it off and close the account. Do you still owe that? Uh, I'm not sure. Do you? Yes. You still owe that. And yes. then it, does that go away after seven years or does it yes. say, do you owe yes. it forever? Or? Well, some, some, um, loan programs like Fannie, uh, just straight Fannie Mae will ignore charge offs, but other loan programs like the famous FHA, which we'll talk about maybe some other day, also a, a first-time home buyers program, you may not have more than $2,000 worth of charge-offs or and collections. If, and if you do have that, you're either going to need to pay it off or pick another loan product, right? Yeah, we're happy to uh, uh, see a payment arrangement. So if you have a charge-off and you need to readdress it, uh, you can make a payment arrangement with a creditor. A lot of times I recommend, sometimes they'll take like a pennies on the dollar. You know, a lot of times charge-offs and collections are sold to other uh, companies that collect, you know, try to collect from you and they'll cut a deal with you. Uh, I don't recommend anybody paying off charge-offs or collections until I review their credit report to see what action we want to take. But charge-off is something that you still owe, even though the creditor has written, that, written, it, uh, written it off on their books. Um, What's another thing? Uh, what about uh, deferred student loans? Do deferred student loans count as debt? Yes. <laughs> yes. So even if your student loan is deferred for two years, it is presumed during the life of your mortgage loan that you will come out of deferment. So we will ask you to go to your student loan website and get a payment plan, not a payment plan, but they give you this these options, like when you come out of deferment, you have an income-based payment or you have, you know, they give you a bunch of options. We just ask you to, to get one. You don't have to set it up or anything. You just have to show it that that's what your payment will be so we can plug that in. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have student loans and a lot of them in, are in deferment. So we'll either use a payment that you give us or we'll add 1%. So if your student loan is $4,000, we'll put in a payment of $40, like a placeholder, because we know that you will eventually have to start paying that. You want to talk about legal judgments? So a legal judgment is something where someone sues you and wins, 
um, they're not counted as debt at the beginning of the loan. But if you buy a house and then you have the judgment is attached to everything you own, that judgment may become attached to your home. So if someone sues you for $10,000 and um, wins while you own your house, that judgment may attach to your house without any kind of notice. Is there a way to protect from that? Like, should I be thinking about purchasing my primary residence in an LLC to protect myself from you, situations like that? Or you, how do you see people dealing with that? Well, like I mean, protection. Yeah. Don't get sued. Um, so, uh, you can set up a payment plan for your judgment so that it won't impact. It will not attach to everything that you own. I'll tell you a story that I, was working with a woman whose boyfriend um, came on to the title of the house to help her with a refinance. So he was on title. And while he was on title, he was sued for a million dollars and he lost. And then later on, he got off of title because his girlfriend was, regained her financial stability. Well, guess what? Well, he owed, he owed that house could not get title insurance, could not be resold without paying that million dollars because he incurred the legal judgment while he was an owner. And, uh, you know, so should that's he, a should he have taken himself. Should he have taken himself off title while he was like in the court? Yes. Proceeding? While he was being sued. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's just part of it. Obviously don't get sued. That's something it's not, it's rare. It doesn't happen often, but yes, you could, there are ways to protect. Um, you would have to consult with your lawyer you have to be the personal guarantor of your house when you get a loan. But when you close, after you close a loan, you can vest what we call vest title in an LLC. If you want an LLC, you want to consult your lawyer, but it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot attach a judgment to the property. Um, so we can, we can talk about that another time. I mean, it is, it is rare, but it does happen that um, the, a judgment is attaches to every single thing you own at the time that you get that. Mm. Okay. Well, these are some things that count as debt. That includes loans that you co-sign. If you have a buddy and you co-sign the car for him uh, and he goes out and defaults on that car, that becomes your credit too. Mm -hmm. um, loans that you co-sign for others if that other person has paid their loan on time in a timely fashion for 12 months we can omit that from your liabilities okay um, so we want to kind of look a, a little bit about income I, I know I told you that we would talk about this a little bit um, uh, all the monthly debt including the mortgage can be no it's, it's between 45 and 55% of your income depending on the loan program so that's a really good place for people to start um, because they can kind of gauge, you know, they can kind of know. Um, for a W-2 person, if you work a regular job, we just use your gross. If you're paid $54 an hour, we use $54 an hour for your income. If you are self-employed, typically we use a two-year average of your net income. And I'm going to talk about what that looks like. Average over two years and divided by 24 months will give you a monthly income. The most important thing to take away is uh, W-2 wage earners get gross. Self-employed people get net. That's after your expenses. We can add back some non-cash deductions like depreciation on equipment and other like 
very random, obscure things that you probably don't deduct. But all your expenses, your materials, your wages, your insurance, all of that is are considered hard expenses. So I'm going to show you a little form after we do this slide. Um, alimony, child support, disability, social security, those are all considered income. They each have their own, including um, uh, public assistance is considered income. We will accept that. Section 8 is considered income. Any of that is considered income. There are some stipulations. I'm not going to get into the details, but those are income. Those are considered income. If you have a co-borrower or a non-occupant co-borrower, like your parent wants to help you, mm -hmm. we will consider their income. So uh, a non-occupant co-borrower does have to be responsible also like a co-signer on the loan, but they will not occupy the property with you. But will they be liable if anything happens? They're still kind of like yes. a co-signer. Okay. Yes. So in real estate lending, we use the term uh, people are jointly and severally owners and jointly and severally li li liable. So they jointly own 100% of the property and they're jointly liable for 100% of the property. So uh, uh, the, the person who is your, uh, your co-borrower must be able to also you know, qualify together with you. All the debt is, is added up and all the income is added up. And we use the same ratios. And that person definitely will be on title and will also uh, be on the loan. Those are two different things. Um, not everyone that's a titled owner must be on the loan, but everyone that's on a loan is a titled owner. Um, second jobs. I get asked about second jobs a lot because in our economy, a lot of people have big income, second jobs. If you've been working a second job, uh, in addition to your primary uh, job, you need a 24-month history. That's two years. <clears throat> So let's say you have you worked at the in the daytime you work for Bank of America, and on the weekends you do Uber. As long as you report it on your income tax, we will take a two year history two year average of your Uber income and add it to your current income on your W two job. But that second job does require a two year history. Now, uh, are there other subsequent jobs that can be listed? Like if I have a fourth or a fifth job, could that be counted yes. or only two? Okay. No, you can have as many jobs as you want. Secondary jobs must be, be seasoned years. for two years, each right. job. So I've had people with three jobs. Um, the, the main job is what is considered to be your primary income is generally your W-2 full-time work, okay, 40 hours a week. Uh, any other jobs that you work part-time must be seasoned two years. I do want to talk about part-time work. You can be part-time and still get a loan, but you have to have that job two years. Mm. And the reason is because part-time people sometimes work variable hours, sometimes 24 hours, sometimes 36 hours. We're going to average that 20, generally 24 months if you've been doing it. Um, uh, there are some exceptions to that, sometimes minimum of a year for part-time income. But that's not, I'm not talking about any other job, but if you let, uh, let's say, a lot of people do not work 40 hours this right, you know, currently in our economy. Sometimes they work 36, 26, 30, 24. Um, then we would take a two-year average. There is an exception to that. If you're a nurse um, or in the medical profession, sometimes there's an allowance. If you have your boss says you work 38 hours every week, every week of the year, then we will accept that. We wouldn't do the average. Sometimes nurses only work a 38-hour week full time or, you know, they, they work a little, but it's every single week. So 
I know that's confusing, but if you work part-time, yes, you can get a loan. We need a two-year income in two-year history. If you have a second job, any second job needs to be seasoned in two years. Okay. Well, that's good I to want know. to show, go ahead. Sorry. Do you have a question? No, I just said that's good to know. That's This is really great information and it's, it's good to everybody kind of take inventory of their situation. And we, yes. have, we have a lot of artists and entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast, but we also are open to sharing this information for anyone to use, no matter what your situation is. And I also think for anybody that is an artist or an entrepreneur, I think it's a good idea to have a W-2 job or something that can provide some constant yes. sustainability and some stable income to show for something like this. If you didn't want to go with the traditional financing route to get property, you can show that two-year history, even if it is part-time work and you're still working on your other venture you could show that additional yes. income and that stability. So I think it's a great idea yeah. for people to have a job, especially if it's in line with what you already do. If it's in your industry, if it's providing you with skills and a network to work on your own passion or entrepreneurial venture, then let's do it. Let's have that W-2. You know, it only can help. It's. I agree with that. I will tell you that some cases of self-employed income, if you have been employed for five or more years in the same, same self-employment, then sometimes we can get a one-year finding. So you wouldn't have to use two years. <clears throat> you could use the most recent year. Um, a lot of times around tax time, I call people up and say, you know, you've been in business for five years. If you file one good tax return this year, I can help you get into a house. And then next year, now to filing a tax return means, you know, that shows income means maybe paying taxes. So uh we're going to talk about that in a minute, but there are cases where we can just use one year as long as you've been in business for five or more years, sometimes less, um, depending on your credit. So there are cases where we can use that. I'm going to I'm going to go to the next slide and we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, self-employment. Um, <clears throat> most people who this is a Schedule C on a 1040 from the 1040. This is a tax form that most, um, it's called a profit and loss. Most artists will use this. Sometimes it's called sole proprietorship. This is what people use who don't have a company. They don't have an LLC, an S corp, a C corp. They don't have an entity. Okay. They just file their income on their personal tax returns. Uh, this comes from one of my clients who does, um, she has a fruit packing business. So, um, she brings in a crew of people and they, you can see they make very, very good yearly income. That's their gross receipts is $364,000. Now, if you look down on line 21, that's their profit, $21,000 after expenses. So what do you think we're going to be able to use to qualify them? What number? The gross. The net. Oh, the net. Why? Oh, cause it's yeah. self-employment. Yes, this is self-employment. So right. if, um, if this was her W-2 employees uh, pay stub, then that then they could use that. But because if we were just uh, this, well, this person actually pays herself uh, a wage. So in that case, which I recommend that you do, you can take a draw or a wage like a W-2 as a self-employed person. Uh, we were able to use her income, uh, her wage income. But if she had not taken a wage for herself, then she would have been. Uh, we would consider her to have made $21,000 for that year. Hmm. So the point that I'm, I want to make with this is that if you write down everything and you are self-employed on this schedule, then you will 
not get the opportunity to purchase <laughs> because $21,000, we don't live in Ohio, you know, uh, where the, it's just not very much monthly income. It's 21,000 divided by 12, which is under 2000 a month. It's going to be very hard to buy a house. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what I, what I counsel is what we can do is a lot of times when we get closer to tax time, I'll say, give me a draft of your profit and loss, you know, that you file and I'll, I'll get an approval based on that draft. And then you can go ahead and file it. You can make an, a payment arrangement with the IRS to pay off any tax liability that you use. We'll use that as a liability and it'll be a way that you can, because we need that tentative profit number to be higher to qualify. Right. I know right. we're kind of getting deep in the woods on some tax stuff, uh, but this is typically what prevents entrepreneurs from purchasing because they have a big gross sale, right? Entrepreneurs, self-employed, creatives, but they only claim 21,000 taxes. And the reason is because nobody wants to pay any taxes. And I, I get that, but for your financial health in the future. And if you want to make investments and if you want to leverage, you have to show some income, um, which kind of brings me to my next slide, which is the IRS is not out to get you. I know everybody feels like the IRS is just so bad and they are just, you know, they just want to take your hard earned money and they're not. I have a lot of clients who actually work for the IRS. I have hosted, um, IRS actually has a community outreach uh, speaker who will come to talk to people for trying to soften their image. They have a lot of really great information on their website. I do encourage entrepreneurs to use a tax preparer, even if it's at H&R Block, so that the tax preparer can um, maximize your tax credits and not having to pay. But the IRS also has some great resources. There is a video. I can't see it, but it's a small business structure video you can watch. It's a workshop. Um, they have different information. This is just from their website. Um, and this is on irs.gov. So anybody yes, that's watching or listening, yes. you can just go to irs.gov, search for where it says file businesses and self-employed up here. And then they got the small business and self-employed category. And then they have the video here, small business taxes. Let's check that yeah. out. If the IRS is making educational content, let's go ahead and get educated by the IRS on how to pay taxes properly. So yeah, sure yeah. And you can see great. the different structures. We didn't talk about this, but the sole proprietorship, which is right here, this is what you would file. This would go with your personal tax returns. I want to make it very clear that the personal, this is a schedule on your personal tax returns uh, and that this line 29, 21,000 will get carried over to your uh, personal returns. But this is one schedule on your personal returns. If you're a partnership, a corporation, or an S corporation, or an LLC, you wouldn't be a partnership. Partnerships are only for like lawyers and doctors. But you can look here on the IRS and see what these different business structures are. And you can find the best one for you. Most people start out as sole partnership like this, but then they get big. This woman actually changed the next year after she did this home purchase. She's now going to be a corporation. Um, you can go over with your either tax preparer, attorney. Um, I, you know, we can talk a little bit about it, but different different structures have different benefits, different tax benefits, um, and different ways of reporting taxes. It may save you money on your taxes to become a corporation, an S corp, which is kind of a California corporation or a limited liability company. Um, corporations tend to one of the main differences is 
protect you from legal um, uh, legal action. So protect you as an individual, right? So there's something that they, we call the corporate veil and um, legal action cannot pierce the corporate veil for one individual who owns that corporation or several individuals, unless it's criminal action, right? So corporations tend to be more protective than limited liability companies in that way. If you have a limited liability company, you can still get sued as an individual. Um, where corporations, you can't. Uh, obviously, if it's criminal, that's different, but there are a lot of differences and you want to want to pick the one that's going to work for you. Can we state that again? I want to make sure people are clear because there's a lot of folks that think that with an LLC, you cannot get sued. No, you, just, you can you get sued. With a, with a corporation, <laughs> that protects you legally, but with the LLC... You can still be liable for litigation yes. in certain cases. Can you yes. break the that reason down that, real quick? Yeah. So uh, uh, this is a wide, uh, a, a widely held misconception is that you cannot get sued. Limited liability companies. What that means is that you can you can only be sued to your ownership interest in the company. It's the limit limited to your liability in the company. So LLCs are typically formed with one or more people, although you can have a single member LLC where there's only one person. It does not protect you. It does not protect you like a corporation will. I mean, most people do not expect to get sued, obviously, but um, an LLC does not offer the protection that an S-corp or a corp can, can offer. The and the corp have very slightly different, um, I'm not gonna go into it, but an S-corp functions more like an LLC. In an LLC, you will have a separate tax return. It will not be on your personal tax returns. And you will be issued an earnings statement called a K-1. Um, so a K-1 is kind of akin to a W-2, but it's from your own company, right? And the K-1 will list that bottom line income for the corporation uh, for that year. So let's say you have a negative cash flow. You'll be, in, you'll be uh, issued a negative K-1. Right. And that will carry over to your personal tax returns and it may limit your tax liability. It's not good for buying real estate because negative K1 means you didn't earn any money. Um, it, the S corporation also has a K1, which is an earning statement that you or the partners in the corporation will get. A corporation has no K1. So you will not get an earning statement from the corporation although there is a line item in the corporation tax returns where you can, as the owner, take an owner draw or owner salary, but there's no earning statement that comes to you in a corporation. And you can, you can consult with your attorney, with your um, tax preparer, um, which will be best for your kind of work that you do. But an LLC does not offer um, protections against lawsuits tort lawsuits. I'm not talking criminal. None of these offer protection against criminal activity, but they will what we call tort, which is lawsuits um, for wrongdoings. Got it. Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. You want to know a, more a about misconception. A lot of people think it is. LLC offers that kind of protection. It does not. Um, it just, it's a way for partners to come together with uh, you know, uh, and be only responsible for their ownership interests. So if you have three partners and each have a 25%, uh, if you get sued, they can only um, go after your 25%. That's what it means. It's limited into the liability of the individuals who are part of the corporation. 
It is not expensive to get either a limited liability, an S corp or a corporation. There are companies that will open those for you. Um, some companies operate in other states. Um, you can talk to your tax preparer about that, but there are, you know, people that do this professionally for a living. They open up these companies for you. And another thing is that I think is good to look at is the state that you're starting the company in because different states have different fees that are required annually to upkeep the business. Do you recommend folks starting a, a company in any particular state if they're wanting that company to hold their real estate specifically? Uh, okay, so you can use an LLC to hold property, okay? It's it's very efficient in holding property. You, If you're using an LLC for your business, right, where you're, you're actually, you know, doing business, you may want to look at other options. But an LLC, a lot of people open them to hold property in, does not protect you from getting sued, but it's just a very easy way um, for people not to be able to find you, you know, you're, it's not listed publicly anywhere that you own the property. Um, you could do that if you, I, if you wanted to, uh, in another state, you wanted to have an LLC property holding LLC, you could go ahead and um, you know, open up an LLC in another state. Um, there may be different tax benefits in different states. If you do that, you want to plan to uh, operate as file a tax return for that LLC in that state, right? And you may also have to, if you get income from it, you may have to file a personal tax return in that state as well as California. So just keep in the mind, you want to discuss it with your tax preparer. I am not a CPA or a tax preparer, but I just work with tax returns all the time. So I know. So yes, but once you, you know, it, when you, when you're buying residential real estate, you're always the guarantor. So you will personally close the loan in your name. And then once you close the transaction, the purchase transaction, you can quit claim it to your um, limited liability company or other other kinds of vesting that you want to do. Oh, you know what? I cannot. I, and you, oh, there you, you mentioned, go. you mentioned quit claim. Yes. Um, I have heard of a quick claim deed. Can yes. you break that down? Is that when somebody wants to transfer the ownership of a yes. property? Yes. Yes. Quick claim. And that's sure. Q so, Q U I T, uh, not quick, but quit claim. Quit. Yeah. Q -U -I -T. You're quit. <laughs> yeah. So if you, that is the language of title, which we are not going to talk about very much today, but the, um, the, a title rep, when you buy a house, they're responsible for, um, researching the chain of ownership on a property and making sure that no one else to make a claim can make a claim to ownership. They are also responsible for looking at the actions on title uh, bef bef that the seller had, the prior seller had, they'll go all the way back. Um, and a lot of times people will want to change their vesting. For example, um, I'll give you a good idea. Uh, like uh, me, if I, own property in my name, Dana Goodman, but then I, um, I opened a trust for my daughter and I wanted to change the vesting of the, of the ownership to the trust, transfer it to the trust. I would quit claim my name into the trust name, right? I would release my claim and put it in the trust. So that's a very common, we call that an intra-family dissolution when people are um, transferring titles into trust, transferring titles to other people. Um, but you can also quit claim uh, your personal ownership into the ownership of an LLC, 
a trust, a corporation, all of that. But in for lending purposes, for residential real estate, that's one to four units, you do need to um, close it in your name and then you can transfer it. That is, that's the document. It's called a quick claim. You, um, I, if I signed it, I would be signing it over the ownership over to my trust. And I would send that to my title company to record. And when I went next to look up the property profile, it would show it be transferred, quick claimed into my trust. So it's a way to transfer ownership. Awesome. And could you touch real quick on, on what is a trust and how you use a trust for real estate? Because I've heard a lot of people talking about buying things in a trust, but then people also yes. say you need to have a holding company that's owned by the trust. And then your properties are owned in separate LLCs by the holding company that's under the trust. But what is the value of having that trust and what type of trust do you so recommend the, people look into? The trust is a, um, it's an entity, but it is not technically a business. Okay. A trust is, um, is made up as a legal uh, entity and you can get one, your attorney can draft. I think they're about $1,200 to open up. And what they do is they have a trustee who manages the trust and they have beneficiaries in the trust. A lot of times trusts are used for estates. And the reason that they're used is so that a property when an owner dies does not have to go to probate. I'm sure you've heard of that term probate when a lot of parties have to go to court <coughs> and decide the disposition of a property because either the owner died without a will or without a trust. Um, if I have a trust and my daughter is the beneficiary for my home, uh, what will happen is while I live, I will be the beneficiary of my own trust. And the trust will state in no uncertain, in, in no uncertain terms that my daughter will be the beneficiary at my death so that she will be able to do things. The trust should also say what the beneficiaries can and cannot do, right? Sell real estate, refinance, you know, any of the items that are held in the trust. Um that's why people use trusts a lot of times for residential real estate is to hold the property for the beneficiaries of the trustee. Now, the trustee is the person who manages the trust. It can be, I can be my own trustee or I can ask someone else to be my trustee. Um, the trust is an actual document. It's usually 30 or 40 pages and it outlines the terms of how the trust functions, who the beneficiaries are, if the trust can be revoked and what powers the trustees and the beneficiaries have in that trust. It's a very nimble way to um, handle real estate. And I like it um, for real estate. It can be combined. It can be primary residence. It can be investment properties. It can be other kinds of assets like bank accounts. They can all be within the trust. And all you have to do is when the, the, current trustee dies is present the trust to the bank or whatever, whoever you're working with. And you have authority as a beneficiary to automatically dispose of the property or, you know, whatever the trust allows. Um, if you have someone that dies intestate, that means without a will or without a trust, you're going to probate court, which can take 24 months. You don't have access to it. Another thing a trust can do is in the state of California, limit the amount of inheritance taxes. Mm. And I, I don't want to quote how much, but um, beneficiary inheritance taxes are huge. Um, they typically are applied when the dollar amount is over a certain amount of money, but um, it can limit and, or mitigate your inheritance taxes because there are none when you're a beneficiary. Hmm. 
That's good. So they're great uh, research. You can look up real estate trusts. They're great for holdings. They are an excellent investment for the money. Um, I think we have a um, a legal document prepare called We the People. Have you heard of that? They're kind of a, um, they are a company and they do trust. They do um, divorce. They do without having to, uh, you know, hire an attorney. They have like paralegals who are certified. They can help you prepare a trust for half the price of a, an attorney. And it's called people. people. Yeah, I think there are them for all over the place. And you can go, you can get a trust, you can get a corporation from them, you can work with them. Um, and it's cheaper than hiring an attorney. Although I, I do recommend the problem with getting an attorney, especially a real estate attorney, is if you're not, and I find this is just terrible, but if you're not going to be a big dollar client, it's hard for them to um, make their business out of doing small jobs you know, especially for attorneys. Um, so I like to use paralegals. Um, paralegals are not allowed to give legal advice. I happen to be a paralegal, um, but they are, they do report and work with attorneys. They do understand how the process is. I don't work as a paralegal, by the way, but um, they are very helpful for that purpose. And that's what they do at We The People or they're what's called licensed document preparers. They can help you prepare your paperwork so it's not so crazy and confusing. They can do trusts or LLCs or anything you might need. That's awesome. So, folks, if you're looking to start your business or you have a business and you need some help on the legal stride, on the structuring side, on the entity formation side, look for a paralegal. Look into We the People. This is not sponsored. We're just sharing good information. But that's a great resource because a lot of folks think, oh, I got to save enough money for attorney fees. Then I got to pay these LLC fees. And then there's monthly upkeep for the LLC. And it's like, do your research and due diligence, you may not need to pay all those fees. You may need to have a completely different structure for what you want, but always consult the people who may be able to help you and have the knowledge and expertise in that area. And that's where we would consult you to look at We the People or another paralegal service that can provide yeah. you with some good info and details on how to do what you want to do for your specific situation. Yeah. And you want to do it right. Again, uh, you do, you know, consult and see which business structure is right for you. Um, we would just use the income from whatever business structure you end up using as your, uh, we're still using that net income. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's a K1 or line 29 from the Schedule C for sole proprietor. Uh, for us, as far as lending is concerned, conventional lending, we will use those numbers. Um, I, you know, we're just going to wrap up on, on this is just, these are kind of the important, um, really good solid information um one is to live within your means i know it's really hard i've had trouble with that <laughs> credit is so readily available uh, try to live within your means Get credit counseling if you need it although i don't really think it's necessary if you uh keep your balances low pay off your debt don't spend too much you won't need credit counseling i mean credit counseling is just someone who's going to tell you uh you know what you need to pay when you really should know what you need to pay Pay your bills on time. Um, try to pay off your debt. If you can't, especially your student loans, do not default on your student loans. Make those payments. If you default on student loans, you may not be able to get an FHA or other kind of government loan. Um, so please, you know, make sure that you acquire and pay your student loans. It's your responsibility to know when those loans come out of deferment um, and to start paying them. Check the loan servicing online uh, often so that you know when those loans are coming out. A lot of people didn't know. I know last August some loans came due. 
make sure you know and you understand. Um, use a secured credit card, check your credit. There's a bunch of free credit. You get a free credit report from Experian, know where you stand, Credit Karma. Um, I didn't mention this, but you can also, utilities are not reported on the credit report, but you can report your own utilities to kind of help boost your score. It's called Experian Boost. You can sign up for it. Obviously, if you do that, you want to make sure you pay your utilities on time. <laughs> so don't invite that unless you're probably going to do it. And I wanted to talk about this because this is the one thing that I see all the time that uh, that people uh, is going to deeply impact their purchase because their monthly debt is too high. But if there's a hint right here, what is it? What uh, do you think it is? There's a hint. Credit in this I don't know. The one it's thing most likely to impact your purchase power. Yeah. It's right there. That photo. Having a car? Having too expensive of a car. Oh. Okay. So I know that it's very, very easy to go out and have a humongous car payment. And they'll give you that credit too. They'll give it to you. Hmm. And you're making $45,000 a year and you're driving a car for $750 a month. That's too much car. I'm going to be the mother here and say that's too much car for you. If you're not making six figures, if you're not making 100 grand a year, you should not be making driving a 750,000 month car when you're trying to buy a house. How should people be thinking about their their income level versus the amount of debt they could take on with a car? Is it like a formula or like I mean, we're how, looking how at that 50, that? we're looking at that 50% rule, right? So that's the rule. So try to, I can go to 56% with FHA, but look at how much that car, let's say your monthly uh, income is $2,000 and you have $1,000 in car payment, right? You only have $1,000 left over for you to, for all your other debt, including taxes, insurance, all of that. So uh, they can call me, I'll do the numbers for them, but that's the, the 50 to 56%. Um including your car payment, the mortgage taxes and insurance can be only 50 to 56% of your income. 750 car payment is a lot. A lot of people are exceeding what they can afford if they want to buy a house. Um, there are ways to deal with that, um, which is I, you know, trade it in. We cannot pay off leases to qualify because car leases beget other car leases. Obviously it's not a purchase. So we can't offer the solution. Well, Hey, if you, if you have a purchase on a car and you're under 10 months, we can omit the car, but not a lease because we know that you're going to go out and buy another one. So uh, at least does not offer the same flexibility. Hmm. Um, so this is some of our challenge affordability in Southern California, stagnant wages, ability to save, cost of living, increasing debt, and low inventory. But if you keep your debt low um, and don't buy too expensive of a car, then I think it's it's possible. Um, are, how are we doing on time? We're good. Okay. We're like just over an hour in, but uh, this is great. We, we need all this information. Our <laughs> listeners need this. Our listeners need this. This is so good. Thank you, Dana. Um, so I want to just talk about a little bit about what constitutes a mortgage payment is principal and interest, uh, property taxes, homeowners insurance. And if you put less than 20% down, you'll have to have mortgage insurance, um, uh, which is a separate payment that's included in your payment 
And then if you have a condo, we don't collect and pay the homeowner's dues, but we did put it in your, um, in your, uh, liabilities. So if you have home home association dues of $440 a month, we will add that to your liability, but we we don't collect that as part of your payment. You pay that yourself. Um, and that's HOA. HOA. Yeah. So, uh, have you seen the HOA impact somebody's ability to close or like get a house because maybe the HOA just set them above the threshold? Yep. So what we do is if you're, if you know, you're going to buy a condo and you want to get pre-qualified, what I'll do is I'll put in a buffer. So I'll estimate what the HOA will be based on the price of the property and I'll stick it in there so that we have that placeholder there. And for my pre-qual, I'll tell your real estate agent that you can qualify for this amount with no more than X dollars HOA. Uh, But usually it was case by case. So they'll, if you find something you want to call me and see if it works, we will. I'm not going to let you in enter into contract if your HOA blows the deal. Um, we, we just can't have that happen. So we do, if you're going to look for a condo, then we do, we will um, ask you, you know, what I'll estimate for you. Um, so I wanted to put up a summary of a transaction right now and talk about where we were with, um, with rates, rates are about six and a half right now. They are just are not as good as they were. And they're gonna stay this way for a while. Um, interest rates for homes are based on an, uh, the 10 year treasury bond. Um, it's an, uh, a mortgage backed security that is traded on Wall Street. It is not based on the federal overnight rate. So when you hear someone say the Fed is raising the rate, the rate that the Fed is raising is called the overnight rate, which is the rate at which banks borrow money from the federal government to cover their balance sheets. So it's basically banks cost for money that we is passed down to you. So you, it will have some impact on the mortgage backed securities and the interest rate. Um, but uh, the overnight rate is not the federal, the federal government does not set mortgage rates. They just set the rate at which banks borrow money uh, banks do not have enough money on hand to cover their balance sheets every night because they take the money that you give them and they go on and invest that. So that to guarantee the money, they borrow it from the central bank. This is the way the financial system worked. And the central bank charges them uh, a interest rate on borrowing this money overnight. And when banks have an increase in that rate, that will trickle down into a mortgage rate. Let's look at a purchase price. This is a condo for $395. Um, I'm going to estimate my closing costs with my down payment and everything to be about $20,000. So the total cost is four fifteen. I'm estimating that the cash the borrower will have to bring in for this primary residence purchase is $27,000. That's at 6.5%, um, right? At 6.5%. Now I can get a down payment assistance to help with a lot of that cost. The borrower still de- definitely will have to bring in money, but let's, I, I really not want to talk about this here, but I want to talk about the estimated monthly payment. So you're going to see the principal and interest is 24.51.44 at six and a half. That's the principal and interest. You should understand that when you have a 30-year mortgage, which is what this is, you will not pay principal for a long time. You really start out by paying the interest, mostly the interest. Then as the years go by, you start including principal. One of the ways that you can also pay principal down faster is to include a principal payment with your main payment that is 
uh, going right to the principal. So the, le the less principal you have, the less interest you pay. Um, we can get into that a little bit more on a more sort of nuts and bolts home, home buyer uh, seminar. I wanted to kind of get through this payment. Home insurance, we estimate at $70. Um, the home insurance covers anything from the walls in on a condo. So uh, we're not talking about the outside common areas, but we are talking about what's in your house, right? You'll be required to carry homeowner's insurance. Real estate taxes are set by the, um, uh, by the county that you live in, and we estimate what those real estate taxes will be. You are not going to pay the same as the seller. Uh, the new guy coming in is going to pay a new assessment for his, the value of the property. If you're the buyer, the county will come out within about six months of your purchase and they will assess your rate. We estimate the rate to be one and a quarter percent times the purchase price. That's ubiquitous standard in California. All the lenders use the same, but it may not actually be that. It may be more, but that is our estimate that we use. Um, mortgage insurance, you must carry. Um this is an estimate for FHA mortgage insurance, but if you have a conventional loan, a mortgage insurance is based on your FICO. Again, the FICO comes into play. It may be less than that. Uh, mortgage insurance is what's paid when you put less than 20% down to guarantee the lender against your default. It's not like a policy, but it's more like an indemnification that will protect the lender. And there you see the HOA dues at 375 for this condo. Although you're not going to pay that with your payment, so you'll end up paying about $3,100 on your base payment. This is what a condo looks like right now. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot to it, and there's a lot for people uh, to consider. Yeah. And it, there's also a lot of variables that are kind of unknown. Like you mentioned, the insurance would kind of get determined later. So like in that six months, while the city or the county is assessing our taxes, are we not paying anything or... No, Is we're going to, yeah. So uh, if you put less than 20% down, generally you have to have your, your, the servicer, the loan servicer will collect your, your insurance and your property taxes in California. Property taxes are paid twice a year. Um, and we'll go ahead and collect this and pay it. And then uh, within six months, you'll get a, a, a letter from the property taxes that said there's some, there may be some residual that they collect from you. Um, it's generally an accurate, um, but they, you will get something called a supplemental tax bill. Um, and there may be a difference between what was collected and what you owe. So you may end up having to pay that. Or if there's some sort of special measure or bond that's voted on by the people that live in your county and they, they decide to pass this measure for schools or whatever, and there's a special tax, uh, the lender does not collect that. They only collect your base property taxes and um, you will be responsible for any supplemental taxes. But generally it's pretty accurate. Uh, when a lender collects your property taxes for you with your payment, they have a fiduciary responsibility to pay those taxes on time and they do. And they also will audit your tax um, account once a year. There cannot be too much or too little excess in there. So it's very highly regulated in terms of what we call an impound account. Impound is uh, uh, when your taxes are insurance and, ins and homeowners insurance are collected and paid on your behalf by the lender. Um, homeowners insurance is collected once a year. So you will pay an entire year premium at the closing. And with your very first payment, you'll pay one twelfth of the premium so that in 12 months, the lender will have enough to, 
to renew your home insurance. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wow. Again, this is kind of part of another more in detail um, home buying um, sort of presentation that we can do so that we can really get clarity on, uh, you know, what these costs are. We'll go over what closing costs are and the difference between closing costs and down payment. Um, I did want to do this for you guys because I know so many people come to me all the time and ask for what is the difference between primary and investment? What is, I, you know, Bijan, you and I met at the Real Estate Investors Association. And the reason that I came there was because I just realized so many people want to buy investment properties. They just don't know anything about it. <laughs> so, um, so I just kind of wanted to go through this really quickly so that we would understand the difference between the two. And I'm, I'm going to first start by talking about occupancy fraud. It is a real thing. And um, lenders, the FBI, HUD, they all work very hard to discourage occupancy fraud. Occupancy fraud is when you say that you're going to live in the property and you don't live in the property. That is not your intent to live in the property, that you are going to use a primary residence interest rate and low down purchase an investment property against the law and they don't like it they can um uh, a lot of people do it but they can unwind your loan they can call your loan due and payable if they find out uh it's unlikely they'll find out but um it's all about what your intent is to occupy fha is more strict on intent to occupy than fannie mae three percent down um but they uh fannie mae is unlikely to, to knock on your door but fha will if they suspect that you do not live there. Um, and um, so the basic, the reason people do it is because purchasing a primary residence does not have these tremendous down payments and other restrictive guidelines. Um, there is no low down payment for investment. Uh, uh, so primary residence is anywhere from three to 5% down minimum. Investment is 20% down or more, depending on how many units you're not gonna live there. You know, I'm talking about conventional financing. I do have some financing at a very high interest rate where you can put 10% down, but may have other difficult requirements that are not appropriate for like a first time investor. You know, it's just not, you're, it's not going to be a good loan for you. Yeah. Um, anything over four units, like a multifamily is a what we consider commercial. Okay. Commercial is anything over four units. And commercial is a whole different animal. I do commercial in California. It requires substantial reserves, down payment experience, personal financial statement, a lot of um, uh, financial uh, um, savvy. Okay, it's not an easy loan. I would not recommend a commercial loan for someone who's, you know, trying to uh, get into the game for the first time. Those are people that own 15 unit apartment buildings. You can kind of work up to that. Um, but um, it is a different kind of loan. Um, investment property financing may require landlord experience, okay? To be able to use the net rent to offset your payment, right? So uh, there's a rule that says that we can use 75% of the market uh, gross market rent, and we will have an appraiser tell us what they think that is. And we can add that back to your income. Let's say 75% of $750. We can add that back to your income to help offset your payment. But Fannie Mae does not allow us to add that back to your income if you do not have a housing payment, 
right? So let's say you live with your folks, right? They are not going to permit us to use that offset. Uh, Freddie Mac is more uh, liberal with that, but you either have to have a housing payment, like you're paying your apartment rent, or you have to, um, or you own a house, and you typically have to have a one-year, 12-months landlord experience to use that offset income on Fannie Mae. Otherwise, and most people, that's how they are able to buy is because they can use that offset rental income, the potential rental income from the unit. Um, it depends on which program we use, but I wanted to say that that some in, some conventional property financing does require that experience. Um, a lot of people go, oh, I um, the rents are 2800 and um, that's going to cancel out the payment. That's just not the way we do it. And it's not the way it's not done at any bank that way. You are going to use a 75% of gross rents that is told to us either by the rent roll or by the uh, appraiser who appraises the property so that we have an idea of market rent. You cannot use the whole thing. It doesn't cancel it out. It's just added a very small percentage of it is added back to your income. If you live in the property and you have four units, we will only use gross rent of 75% of the gross rent of the three remaining units. Okay, you so do not right. get to use the rent from your uh, own unit. So right. it's it's generally smaller than people expect, right? Uh, because we it's it's generally not counseling out the mortgage payment. Okay. Uh, investment property will require up to, it can require up to six months PITI reserves uh, per unit, okay? And that's depending on uh, what uh, Fannie Mae, the, the automated underwriting system tells us. So PITI was principal interest, taxes, insurance, and mortgage insurance, and HOA. So let's say this, for example, $3,481 you could need up to $18,000 to $20,000 in reserves to uh, buy this condo as an investment property if if it required six months reserve. Sometimes it only requires three, but usually with an investment property, you will have to have some reserves somewhere. And this is why I tell people, to start, if, you, if you're working a W-2 job, just start a 401k. Start it. We can show it as your reserves. You don't have to have it liquid in your account. We can use stocks and everyone should have a 401k because it's a very fast growing way to earn that reserve money. You don't have to spend that money. You just have to show that you have it. Gotcha. You cannot use gift funds to purchase an investment property. It's all got to come from you. Uh, that's just another thing. And same with reserves. They have to be seasoned in your bank account for 60 days. Um, and if somebody did want to give you a gift or if you had like a partner, a cash partner, um, you don't have to call that a gift, but if you wanted to use any of those funds, that would have to be seasoned, which means sitting in your bank account for a period of time, just to show that it didn't come from out of nowhere. It wasn't just a direct deposit from somebody it, you have to kind of basically prove to the bank from an account perspective that you've owned that money for a period of time, right? That's what seasoned means. Yeah. Season means that it's been sitting, we call it seasoned or source. So it can sit in your bank account for 60 days where as long as we have those two bank statements, each covering 30 days, so it doesn't show the deposit. Right. So it's just got to be exist there. Okay. Um, it cannot be we cannot paper trail that for investment back to some a buddy. Right. So 
they would look at your bank statement and want to know where that money came from if it was a deposit. If it was already just sitting there, it's considered seasoned if it's been in there for 60 days. Uh, for primary residents, we can we can get a gift letter, but you are not allowed gift for investor. So you have to freely own that money. It has to be sitting in your account for 60 days. Or you can invite the gift donor to become a co-borrower on the loan and they can bring that money in as a borrower. Um, so yes, you will have to. And that's the same with all money that you use in a real estate transaction. You cannot use that money. You cannot bring that money that's sitting in your closet or wherever uh, unless it's been seasoned or sourced. Sourced means I got a bonus at work and they gave me a check or my grandma gave me this money. We're going to paper trail that. We do not want to see cash and use. It's not really permitted in real estate transactions where there's financing. It's an anti-money laundering law and we all follow it. It's the same everywhere, but there are ways to kind of work around it. Um, but not for investment property. You cannot, it cannot be a gift. Um, okay. So higher down payment, higher interest rates for units and investment properties in general. Um, like I said, there are other ways to go about it. You can go hard money, uh, which is where they don't, they don't have a strict requirements, but they will have a phenomenally expensive interest rate. Um, uh, they usually are interest only loans with lots of points, you know, be prepared to pay, um, 4% of the loan amount as a comp compensation to the loan officer. We don't operate that way. You're never going to pay me any compensation. I'm paid by the bank. So it's private money and uh, uh, conventional lending is very different, but there are options for private money. I just wouldn't, I don't recommend it for a buyer who's starting out. Okay. So there's private, private money, there's bank money, there's conventional huh? loans, there's private loans, there's hard money loans. Yeah. And okay. So there's, I mean, I set someone up with a private money loan i just don't feel good about it i mean it's just not a great vehicle for a first-time buyer they're very very expensive they require a lot of cash um and um i think convention the reason that i'm so big on conventional lending is that and i i want to say that if you have not bought anything you should buy your primary residence first using primary residence terms and then turn around and sell that in you know a couple of years and use the equity to buy, to buy a new primary residence and make your old residence your investment. Okay. With a lot of these, if you live in the primary residence, your first one for one year, you can sell yes. it after that, right? One year is the minimum. You can sell it in six months. Oh, six in six payments. months. Okay. But you're not going to earn the equity. I mean, you want to obviously hang on to it until you have some equity because uh, once you have equity, you can turn around and buy something else. Equity means the the amount of money that you've earned. So if you you only borrowed three hundred thousand, but your house is now worth five hundred thousand, at closing you will get two hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, that minus equity. your yeah, that, because that you you earn that equity. But what you can also do is use the primary as your departure residence and buy a new primary with same low down and low interest rate terms and make your departure residence your investment property. They don't care. There's no changes on the loan. You'll have a great investment property at a very low rate. You know, uh, what, which, what if you what if you did a FHA or a NACA loan? Does that change? Uh, FHA, you have to intend to occupy within 60 days. You have to keep the loan. Any any conventional loan you want to keep for six payments or more. Um, it 
doesn't change. You can, you can depart an FHA, you can have an FHA loan on your primary residence, but you cannot use another FHA loan to buy the new one. You would have to use a conventional loan, except for certain circumstances, you can have two FHA houses, but it has to do with like outgrowing your old house and all this proof. Like I have a lady who had five kids since she bought her FHA house. So we were allowed to buy another FHA house, but typically you cannot, uh, but I'll work with that. I mean, I'll tell you what you need to do, but for NACA, um, so a lot of the programs, NACA is just one um, program. They do have requirements about how long you have to live there, what you're going to owe. So if someone like NACA or LIPA is another program we use. They give you $140,000 to buy your house. Uh, you're going to owe that back to them. <laughs> so uh, it's not a grant. It's not a gift. That will eat into your equity in the future. It's better, I think, to buy low down and then just grow the equity that remains your own. Uh, they're great programs, but you're going to have to pay that money back. It's not, it's not free money. And they may have, I don't work with NACA, but you may have restrictions about how long you have to own it, when you can sell it, or maybe profit sharing. I don't know what's involved in it, but um, yeah, I think I heard with NACA there had to be a number of years, and I heard with FHA yeah. you had to live there for at least one year before you could sell it and roll over and get a new loan. You can but with sell NACA, it. I think it was like four FHA years. six months. I mean, but you want to keep it in there so that you can get your equity. Right. <laughs> you don't want to sell it right away. Um, Unless there's certain market conditions like. If you if you're in a market condition where one year later your property is worth two hundred thousand dollars more than it was, or a hundred because some crazy appreciation or just a shift in the market, um, would that still be a good idea? Or would you say, hey, keep holding uh, it because maybe you'll get more equity? Um, well, if you just I you hold know on I longer. I had um, a guy that I work with who and his family who was a home who worked with Homeboy Industries and. The only place that he could afford to buy was like Crestview, which is near Lake Arrowhead. This is a number of years ago. And I think he bought a house for $325,000 in, in um, 20 months. It was worth $535,000 in 20 months. So it's less than two years. Um, and he just pulled, we just did a new loan and he pulled money out of it. He pulled uh, $100,000 out and he actually decided to upgrade his house, but he could have gone and bought another property. Um, with that equity if you wanted to. And you and that was a cash out refinance that you did? Yes. Okay. So you can pull your equity out. You can leave it. I would just leave it. Um, but there are, I, there's always a lot of appreciation in, um, in, in uh, Southern California. It's not appreciating as fast as before, but um, I'm going to just talk about briefly. I'm just going to go over if you want to afford a home in Southern California, there are some ways to start what is manufactured housing um they're much nicer now we're not we don't finance like a single wide everything has to be a double wide condo or starter home you can get a co-borrower uh sometimes you know a lot of people are working remotely so they can move out of southern california and still retain their jobs um riverside and san Bernardino counties are great for purchasing um you can sometimes use your 401k. Here's that 401k again. If you have a retirement plan, they a lot of times they let you borrow from it at no, you know, at very little cost, and you can take a chunk out and use it for the down payment. Um, obviously, you want to pay down debt. The more debt you pay down, the more you can qualify for. There is an equity incentive that when you buy here, you're obviously going to earn that equity no matter what. Um, 
and it makes financial sense to own a home. I just wanted to kind of work through that that's some ways to afford us co-borrower, co-living. There's lots of opportunities there. Um, we kind of talked about this, so I'm not going to uh, talk about this too much, but these are the minimum downs for some kinds of loans. Um, and I want to, I'm kind of wrap up my presentation, but I, I do want to talk about uh, financial fitness and savings mindset because uh, financial fitness is really a habit. It's not a skill. Uh, so when you get into the habit um, of paying your bills every month, like I wasn't really taught, shown really good spending habits growing up. If you weren't, you wouldn't forgive your parents and start learning it today. Um, because I notice a lot of people that I work with sometimes uh, it's not that they can't afford it. They just won't do it. You know, like I'll work with someone and work and work and work with them. And then they'll, they'll all of a sudden they'll get a late payment. I'm like, why did you let that happen? You know, you can just go back to the starting. This is a, this is really a, uh, running the business of your personal and professional life. And, um, and these are like the basics. Like these are these are some of the core basics. And I will admit, I I learned the core basics from my my mom and dad of paying on time. They did teach me the, a basic level about um, credit, but it was more about being aware of the dangers of misusing credit um, as opposed to how can I use credit to get a house or finance my business and then use that money to like pay for ads and then pay them back and then grow my business. You know, it was, it was more about holding on to everything. And I understand that the, the skill is important, but I love the, the framework and the mindset around why it's important to do these things and how it actually can create wealth. And then when we do have some funds or some savings, a deployable strategy to go ahead and grow that wealth and um, not just be sitting on cash, not knowing what to do with it other than, use it to buy something. Right. Yeah. So, like so I got it. This we're mindset very, match with the investing mindset is so important. Yes. It's a very commercial. We live in a very commercial environment and there's a lot of temptation everywhere. And um, that's one of the great things about a 401k is that it'll come out of your paycheck. If you're a W2 employee, uh, my company matches, I'm on a 4% match. So they'll match everything that I, I give, and I give a huge amount. I give almost 20% of my income into my 401k because I, I don't want to have to go and like put money into the bank. I really like get taken out before I get it. So a 401k is a great way to, in six months you will have, if you commit to it, you could have a little, a little egg in there and uh, you know, that you can show that for your reserves if you need it. Um, and you know, another thing I want to say is you can forgive your past. Um, like I felt so guilty for such a long time. Forgiveness is really important. Self-forgiveness um, you can learn from your past mistakes and also your credit is not something like you don't ruin your life because you have a period of bad credit. You know what I mean? You can rebuild it. And it's one of the things in life that we can, and we make a mistake, we can get it back. Um, and the other, the last thing I want to say, there's a few things on here, but make yourself accountable to someone else. You know, if you got a buddy and you want to get together once a month and sit down and pay your bills together, uh, I make it a habit of paying my bills around the first of every month. I sit down, it's on my calendar, calendar it, make yourself accountable to yourself or another friend so that at least once a month, you're reviewing your spending, you're reviewing what you owe and what, what's gone into savings. That's just really important to make time for yourself. I used to hate going in and seeing what my bank balance was because I didn't like it, <laughs> but it's your friend, you know, it's your friend. Don't ignore it. Keep track of where what you're doing and 
you know, check in on yourself. And I, I just want to finish up because I want to talk a little bit about um, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. I'm sure a lot of you know who he is. He, uh, he lives in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, his company, Berkshire Hathaway, buys other companies, turns them around and sells them. And he has a personal fortune of $100 billion. And he's just kind of like a guy, you know. Um, he has donated most of his wealth to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you don't know who he is, he has an absolutely fascinating story if you want to look him up. But I want to tell you something about Warren. Uh, uh, so $100 billion. So this this is the house that Warren bought in Omaha, Nebraska, when he first uh, opened Berkshire Hathaway. And guess what his house looks like now? Same house. Same house. Uh, this is his house. Now, I do think that he put up a fence. Right. Uh, because At he <laughs> it was a little bit of a privacy issue, but this is kind of the same modest house that he lives in. And this down here is his patty. Um, he does lease a Cadillac. It's seven hundred fifty dollars a month. Remember, I talked about the Cadillac uh, and he says that's his indulgence. He allows himself to lease a Cadillac. I think he leases it for two or three years and then turns it in. Um and Warren always says, do not say what is, what is, I can't read what it says. Do not, do, do not, not save what, what is left what after spending, yes. but spend what is left after saving. Yes. Do not yes. save what is left after spending, but spend what is left after saving. Yes. And um, if you see here, he also says, if you buy things you do not need, soon you will have to sell things that you do need. Wow. So um, that those are his two things. And I just want to tell a little story about him. Um, so this is Warren and, um, so, uh, he loves McDonald's. That's one of his favorite places to eat in Omaha. And he's also and, an investor in McDonald's, right? Uh, I think Berkshire does own some of McDonald's, but he really likes McDonald's. That's why he goes there. So in the morning, his wife will give him change, you know, for his little cup in his car for him to buy either a sausage, uh, muffin or an egg McMuffin. And the way that he decides what he's going to eat is he looks at the Berkshire Hathaway stock for that day. If the Berkshire Hathaway stock is up, he gets himself an egg McMuffin, which is, of course, more bougie than the sausage McMuffin, <laughs> which is 99 cents. It is not a good Berkshire Hathaway stock day. He only gets a sausage McMuffin. <laughs> so that is how Warren... Uh, that is how Warren thinks about breakfast, $100 billion, uh, and drives. He he can go ahead and drive that $750 a month Cadillac. I think it's worth it for him because that's all he does. Um, that's his sort of thing. So look at Warren. He's he's a wonderful role model for people who are one of – he did not start uh, with a lot of money, but he said, I just loved watching the interest grow from my the equity in my stocks that I bought, even if they were not very expensive. He's got just wonderful stories about his life. This is me. So if you <clears throat> want to find out where you stand, if you're interested in getting a mortgage, you can contact me here or through Bijan. Um, and, you know, there's so much more to tell. We'll have to do more of this, more of the kind of nuts and bolts of home buying. But this has just been great talking to you. I just didn't want to drag on but we'll well this is, this is really good i think this might be one of the most educational and informative episodes of abundance universe 
I want to thank you for taking the time to share this and taking the time to educate yourself so that you could be a resource and a tool and a light for others because you help so many people both through Wintrust Mortgage, but you also do workshops and seminars and talks for people of all ages, all over the country, all over the world. So I just want to thank you for being abundant. And there's a couple of questions that I ask everybody that come on the show. So I'll ask, I'll ask you, and then we can get ready to wrap it up. Um, but I want to know, what would you, what would you say is your advice for someone who is looking to create more abundance in their own life personally? Uh, maybe there was a time when you weren't as abundant as you are now. What did you do to turn your life around from like a mindset and just a habits perspective to create more abundance in your life? Well, I think, I mean, I, I think it was discipline for me, honestly. I um, um, I really focused on moving forward. I know that I could feel stagnant in my life at some times where I just wasn't achieving it, but I really made it achieving more like a job, right? So I would, I would time block some time every day, a number of hours. I would try to plot out a course for myself. I mean, I know I'm being kind of general, but there were times where I felt like really stuck. Like I didn't know what I was going to do next in my life. And I felt like I had to block time out, do research and online. I had to do like a board of my interests, write that down, really just, you know, very starting at the very basic. But I think the most important thing was giving myself that time to work on it. You know, our day gets very busy. If you're having a problem, if you're feeling stuck, if you want more abundance, you must donate the time to think about how to get there. Because I realized I was just thinking about, boy, I wish I was there. I wish I was there. But I wasn't giving it the time that it needed. So I would say that would be definitely bringing more abundance to set aside some time for yourself to exercise your brain on how you're going to move forward. Wow. That's good. Okay. Thank you for that. We got to give our, give ourselves a time. Like I feel like sometimes we can get so caught up in the business of life and doing things for others that we can forget what's important to us. And I think we got to check in with ourselves. And there's a term that I like to talk about all the time that I discovered a few years ago called Ikigai. I-K-I-G-A-I, Ikigai. And it's a Japanese term. Yeah, Ikigai. And your Ikigai is your reason for being. It's basically your purpose, your your big why. And I discovered that my Ikigai was the We Uplift the World Foundation, but basically to use my gifts of creation and use my voice, my ability to generate excitement and community and have fun, use that for something bigger than myself, which is this organization that I created for art and tech education Mm -hmm. called the We Uplift the World Foundation. But that was a process of me going through and seeing what was the most important things that I loved, my skills, what I was good at. Also, what does the world need and what's the demand in the world right now? What is the market looking for? I put all that together and created this offering. And I think it's important for folks to really understand who they are and what is the best way for them to serve the world. But all that is so much easier to do when you have the basic financial stability in place and the basic knowledge of, okay, I'm growing my wealth. I have income. I have investments. I know where I'm going to live. I own where I'm going to live. That makes finding your purpose or creating a big business or a company or a big mission so much easier when you cover the things that you shared with us. So I want to ask you as well, before we wrap it up, what is your why? Oh, well, I would say my daughter is my why. You know, when I um, had my daughter, I mean, she became just a driving force in my life. 
And I will also say that since she's kind of moved away from home and going to college, I had to find a different why <laughs> because, uh, you know, she was no longer as dependent. So I would say uh, my why is me. You know, I want to move myself ahead. There's a life that I want to live for. I really do. I'm really a happy, I'm really happy in my life. I can do the things that I love to do. I am not a millionaire. I'd like to be, but I am, I have abundance enough and I'm not worried about where my bills are getting paid because I, you know, organized it in such a way and I have goals that I want to achieve. So my why is really me and, you know, what the next part of my life looks like. And um, it's really because I spent the time and I invested the time because, you know, with child rearing and being a parent, you know, you're always so involved in them. And it was really kind of taking time out and kind of looking. So I would say her and me together are my wives. That's excellent. Well, you're doing it and you're helping a lot more people. You know, you're leaving a really awesome legacy of education, inspiration, helping people with financial freedom, financial stability, which is transforming their lives for generations and generations. So really grateful that your daughter and you are able to provide that inspiration and motivation for you to do what you do. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to, I want to say also as, oops, my, um, I just want to say, so awful. it doesn't have to be like a giant, you'll feel better too. I mean, you'll feel better. It doesn't have to be today. doesn't have to be, you're not moving the big pieces. Maybe you're just starting out by sitting down and going over what your bills are going to be for next month. It can be just very small, basic thing. You will feel, you will walk around, you'll feel so much better about yourself uh, that you took the time and the responsibility, or even like checking your bank balance, seeing where things are at, checking in with yourself financially. Just make five minutes a day and just check in with yourself and you're just going to walk around and you're going to feel great. Yes, it, it definitely does provide a level of confidence and security just to know where we stand yes. every day. And I've gotten in yep. the habit of checking my bank accounts and my investment accounts each day as soon as I wake right. up just to just as level set. And it actually will help transform what I decide to do with my day. And I actually have more productive days because that is a driver. Yeah. But not just to increase it, but to maintain it and to let me manage this well. And I enjoy taking care of the finances that we're able to create because it is a creation. Making money yes. is an art. Providing value to others and receiving money in return, that's an art. That's an art form. And the result of that, that money, that's a creation, right? Yep. So that that has to be fostered and nurtured as well. So you've given us some good tools and tips to do that. And uh, lastly, before we wrap up, I just want to know, is there any advice, recommendations, or tips that you want to share um, that we haven't discussed yet that you would want to leave to somebody if this was the last podcast they ever listened to? <laughs> Um, what would be kind of the final things you want them to like really remember and take away? Um, and it's gonna be about anything, but just any, and anything else you want to share, um, let's give it to them. Let this be okay, the best well, podcast I, ever for them. <laughs> I would first say get advanced training. So, uh, either college or vocational school or lots of online courses. There are lots of advanced, I think getting that education, extending your education is so important for um, just in personal wealth and stability. I am a big proponent of secondary education. It doesn't have to be college. It can be vocational school and you can get it paid for. There are ways, but that will put you into a whole nother income earning bracket. Um, you're just going to be taken more seriously. It's so important to me that people get out of high school and they go and they pursue that. You may not be, you're still kind of forming your you're going to have that guidance. It's going to be great for you because a career readiness is very important. And I don't think sometimes high school doesn't 
prepare you for career readiness. And so I would say um, definitely get that education that you need, go out and get it if you need it, because that's going to just put you in so much better of a situation. So that, I'm, I'm going to just end with that because I just, I think it's so important um, to have the skills that you need to go out and make it. And it's, there's a maturing that comes after high school when you are in that secondary education situation. It has nothing to do with academics or anything. You're not going to remember anything you learn in college anyway, but you, you will mature and um, you will be, you will feel ready and you will have peers that support you. And I think that would be maybe my number two is get peers that support you, get into a group, reach out to people, do not do this in isolation. It's very hard um, to be a creative or run your own business in isolation. Get into some support groups and work with people who, who are like-minded um, because then that will help you, you know, during the difficult times, it's not always easy, especially for young people. Um, you know, there are lots of groups available. Even our Los Angeles Real Estate Investors Group that meets on the second Thursday of every month at the MAN Cultural Center, Get out there. Do not stay home behind the screen all the time. Um, get out there and uh, be in your community. Yes. So I, could, I could keep going, but I would say those are two awesome things to do. Don't stay home and just be your, your screen. Get out there and do some volunteer work. Meet people because that will expand your business. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to like 10 or 15 events every single month because it helps my personal growth and it helps expand uh, my business and it gives me experience on how to have conversations with people, you know, especially when, you know, you graduate from high school, you might not be totally socially ready. You know, you have to, those, you don't, there's no learning manual, you know, having conversations with people is important. And especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, especially if you're creative, you know, right. you've got yeah. to be able to interact with a lot of people. So anyway, I, this, I could just go on and on, but I would say education and, and outreach into your community. Get stop staying home. <laughs> Get outside. Get, out. <laughs> Get outside. Talk to people. TTP. Do something. Network. Collaborate. That's good advice. I love yeah. those two points. You know, yeah. um, folks got to go for it. Folks got to live their best life. Got to believe in yourself. But you definitely got to connect with people. Like all the opportunities that are going to happen for you are going to happen from other people that see value in you and that you provide value to and, and receive value from. This is how Dana and I met at the yep. real estate investors meeting and just having an organic real conversation. We saw we had so much in common and now we're coming together to have a conversation that can uplift and benefit you. And this is how we uplift the world. This is what it's all about. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something they told me when I first started in the, in the loan industry, I would like sit in my office all day. And one time my boss came and he's like, you know, there are no loans in the office. You have to go out. You have to leave to generate your business. And that's going to be true for just about anybody. You really have to get out. Stop staying home. <laughs> yes. Get, get active. And gotcha. I want people to understand, too, money does not just come out of thin air. Money comes from other people as a result of providing value to those other people. So let's yes. get out and meet some people that we can provide yes. value to. <laughs> yes, I agree. This is awesome. Well, Dana, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Me too. A lot of takeaways, a lot of really great notes. I'm going to go back and watch this again and again and take my notebook out because you gave us a, a college course on investing. It was a lot. It, I'm those. sorry. It was a little rambling, but don't I don't be sorry. No, thank I, you. 
Thank you for this. <laughs> this is what we need. This is what Abundance Universe is all about. As you mentioned, education is the key to progress. Education is the key to breaking through new paradigms. And we have to be supporting each other with knowledge and wisdom that has helped us. And that's what community yes. is all about. So I just want to thank you. I'm immensely grateful because the listeners of this podcast are going to have some special gifts that they can use to really uplift their life. So thank you for sharing all that you did. I My want pleasure. folks to make sure you're subscribed to Dana Goodman. Check out her socials. I'll be tagging all of her stuff in the show notes. But Win Trust, that is her company. Dana Goodman is her name. Look her up, reach out to her, connect on LinkedIn. Make sure if you're getting a home or you're interested in getting a home, you give Dana a call. She's going to get you set up with the right mortgage product for you and make sure that you're getting the best deals and have the most support, as you can see. So reach out to Dana. Let her know any questions you have. Let her know what you thought about the show. And let me know if you have any questions or what your favorite discussion topic was today, because I know we covered a lot. Yeah, we can we can do another one. We will. We're going to okay. have to. So let's 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 see what the people say in the comments and then we'll follow up with whatever the audience is hungry for. OK, so thank you all for tuning cool. in. Dana, thank you. We want to tell pleasure. all of our all of our listeners to have the most abundant day every day. Take action on the things that you learn. Go get in community. Share this with someone that you love and that you care about and connect with us on social media. Until next time, peace and blessings abundantly. This has been Abundance Universe, Bijan Machin, and Dana Goodman. Thank you.